I think there's still a very dismissive attitude, especially among some VCs. This is not a problem. Your market's not big enough. You know, this isn't a problem. This is just a phase or whatever it is. And I, that's that's got to change. I mean, if we see anything that's happened, it's really the fertility stuff. I think that's made the first big change and opened people's eyes to the fact that women want data. They want answers and they want um, more information. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators reimagining the future of health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. My guest this week is Dr. Stephanie Canali, the founder and CEO of Lactation Lab, which Startup Health backed in 2019. As a family doctor and as a mother, Dr. Canali saw firsthand the challenges faced by new moms when it came to feeding their babies. What she saw again and again was that moms simply didn't have information about their own breast milk. Was it low in any nutrients? Would the child benefit from a supplement? Why, she wondered, was there so much guesswork about something so essential to infant thriving? So she came up with a testing kit that analyzes breast milk to show exactly what nutrition an infant is getting, which allows mothers to replenish anything that's deficient. I wanted to dial up Dr. Canali this week for two reasons. One was to get her take on the current infant formula shortage since she works so closely with new moms but also to talk about some exciting news. Lactation Lab has just received breakthrough designation from the FDA for a device they've built that's being used in hospitals to make sure that the most at-risk babies get the nutrients they need to grow and thrive. Dr. Canali explains all about it in our interview and how this breakthrough designation has changed her company's trajectory in some interesting ways. Enjoy. Dr. Stephanie Canali, CEO and founder of Lactation Lab. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to see you. So you and I have talked before about what you're building at Lactation Lab, but uh, give me an overview for, for the, the listener, uh, just what you've built and what you're working on next. Right, so at Lactation Lab, we just launched Emily's Care, which is a new device, but basically we're working on taking the guesswork out of breastfeeding. It turns out that the mammary gland is the only gland in the body that does not have a diagnostic tool. So what we've done is really trying to take the guesswork out of breastfeeding, have an idea of what's going on. And we also realized over the last year and a half that there's an unmet need in the NICU to have accurate diagnosis um, and determination of the macronutrients in breast milk. Okay, so so walk me through this. I know initially it was all about testing uh, a mother's breast milk to understand the makeup of it so she could feed her child better. So how did that segue into a device? You said Emily's... How that segue, right, so how that happened was basically, you know, COVID hit. And we're like, wait a second, you know, moms are super stressed. A lot of doctor's appointments, in-person visits were being postponed for well-child visits. And we realized we need to take the lab to the bedside. We need to get into at-home testing. And how can we do this accurately? And how can we do this you know, to make it not only easy, but then we started to look at, well, wait a second, what are the barriers to testing right now? In the NICU per se, human milk is the standard of care and it, it, it alone, especially for premature babies, doesn't have enough of the nutrients, so it needs to be fortified. And when you look at like the standard of care, which is basically to kind of like assume what's in a mom's milk and then just add a bunch of fortifiers, and then feed that to the baby, you're like, wait a second, this is the one variable we can control for in the NICU. 
Hmm. We know this can determine better outcomes. So within, yeah, within the first couple of weeks of life, it's amazing how it determines um, white brain matter, IQ, survival, all this stuff. Yeah, I was just going to ask you to give some more details about kind of what's at stake if we don't go down this road. Yeah. So it, it's um, it's kind of hard to believe, but, um, you know, in the third trimester, so Again, like no one plans to deliver prematurely. No one wants to be in the NICU. When you're in the NICU, you're in the NICU. And in the third trimester of pregnancy is really when all of this growth would happen. And there's a lot of increased metabolic needs for the baby. Um, for premature infants, this happens in the NICU. So human milk alone is not enough to meet those need, needs, meaning high calories, high protein in particular. And studies have found within the first two weeks of life, the amount of calories and protein are essential to determine not only growth, IQ, white brain, uh, white uh, white matter brain volume, um, cognitive abilities, and so forth. So it kind of goes back to this whole notion around the first 1,000 days of life, which is from the time from conception to age two, how it's critical for development, and it's you know um, can lead to it's sort of like the optimal time to kind of program um, program us really for like optimal health, yeah. but not doing it or not meeting those criteria really does lead to irreversible, you know, brain damage and can lead to irreversible health health uh, defects and um, you know detrimental effects later on in life. Let's roll it back. Like, yeah, I kind of joke like it's like it's like the, the the computer's being made and the software is being programmed at that time and it can't be changed. Interesting. Let's roll it back a minute yeah. and tell me more about how you came to this challenge. I know you're you're a family physician. That's correct. So I practiced family medicine for 15 years. Um, I'm also a mother and I struggled with breastfeeding. So um, like many healthcare founders, female founders in the um, health tech, femtech space, I should say, personally struggle with something. Um, and I found that there was a need to really know what is in milk. My daughter was failure to thrive, which meant she was falling off the growth chart, but yet there's so much pressure to breastfeed even more so now than before. And that's when I said, you know, we need to figure out again, like realizing there's no diagnostic tool for the mammary gland. Like, why don't we know more about this? Why do we know so much more about cow's milk than human milk? Why are there so many unanswered questions? Why can't we figure out, is it just a cow? Like, you know, th this archaic view of just counting the number of pee diapers and poo diapers and so forth. And then, um, you know, I felt I am so passionate about this. I left my practice in April of 2020, kind of right when the pandemic really hit. And that's when I really focused on creating a device, creating an at-home test and point of care test that could be done to really accurately measure what is in human milk. You made that quick comment about, we know more about measuring cow's milk than human milk. And that clearly goes to something that you've you've looked into. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Tell me what you're talking about there. I mean, it, it's just a lot of the literature of human milk is kind of based on these assumptions that are around cow's milk. The reality is that cows are bred in a way, you know, which ones will make, you know, high fat milk, high protein milk, then the ones that are the low producers are kind of bred out. But that leads me to the kind of the bigger the bigger issue here is that from an evolutionary standpoint, there are genetic predispositions and um, genes that are expressed, which are affected by stress and environment that determine a mother's milk production ability, basically. So my, my big 
mission in life is to stop making these assumptions around breastfeeding that just because it's natural, it's easy. And just like any other part of the body, it may not always work perfectly for everybody. So just like someone wears glasses, you don't walk down the street and make fun of the person because their eyes don't work or shame them for needing glasses or contact lenses because their eyes aren't doing what they're supposed to do. Is the same way I want us to talk and, and have that conversation with other moms. It's not going to work for every mom and breastfeeding is tough. So let's support those that can do it, that want to do it. Those that want to do it a little bit great. But the reality is it's just like every other part of our body. It may not be perfect and it may not come easier naturally to some. So let's accept that. I've, (laughs) I've seen how in your literature on your website, I've seen how you walk that line between saying, look, breastfeeding is, has these benefits. And yet yeah. we also support a, a mother's choice in really what works for her. I was kind of curious if that is a challenging line to walk. Is, is that, um, does that come naturally or, or is that something you really have to work out day by day? No, I think at first, you know, when we first started, it was something that I would say I would tread like lightly about. And, but I think the reality is maybe it's just my cynicism over time where I'm like, enough with this all or none. Let's stop saying it's, you know, fed is best. Well, of course you have to feed your baby. I mean that, you know, otherwise they should be taken away from you. It's, you know, it's illegal to not feed your baby. It's criminal. Um, But my point is like this whole idea of like breast is best and it's all or none. I think that thinking, I'd like to see that go. I think Mm -hmm. the reality is there are a lot of health benefits to breast milk. Yes. And in the NICU per se, human milk is the standard of care. It has been shown to be better than cow's milk based protein, you know, protein that's an infant formula. These are facts, but the messaging to women, I think needs to change to, you know, to the average mom that it doesn't have to be all or none. And so, you know, we published a paper, for example, that was like, even if you give your kid just one ounce of milk a day, um, there's so many really interesting strains of bacteria and stuff like that. Like there are health benefits to that. So I really, my, you know, again, my thinking is let's move away from the all or none. And, you know, especially times, you know, with the latest formula shortage and so forth, like getting to the fact that moms need formula, there's always going to be a need for formula. There's moms who don't want to breastfeed, who choose not to, and who can't. So we have to have options. Let's dive deeper into the device itself, because my understanding is that you recently got breakthrough FDA clearance. Is that true? We don't have clearance yet. We got FDA breakthrough designation, designation for our device. So our device, yeah, it's um basically we're measuring the macronutrients, so fat, protein, and lactose in milk using an enzymatic proprietary test strip, read with the app, our app, Emily's Care app, which uses the phone as a spectrometer. Wow. So we've basically been able to like replace um, a piece of lab equipment, but then pick up the nutrients because when a baby's in the NICU in particular, they're very key targeted intakes they need to have. They need to have an, a, by weight, a certain amount of protein and calories per day. And so really the standard of care, which is kind of, you know, making these assumptions, what's in mom's milk, adding a bunch of fortifier powders and then giving it to baby really just doesn't cut it because, you know, too much protein can cause issues for the baby, you know, obviously renal failure in some extreme cases, but it's like, as a doctor saying, oh, you know, say to the pharmacy, oh, mix up a bag of TPM, you know, nutrition, and just give me what you got. It's okay. And so for the most vulnerable infants, 
right? The most vulnerable human beings, sometimes some babies are just 800 grams, 1200 grams. It is imperative to know exactly what they're getting. And again, it goes back to the fact that like no one chooses to be in the NICU, no one chooses to deliver prematurely. And this is a modifiable risk factor. This is something that we have control over. So let's know exactly what's going into that baby's diet. Yeah. A lot of our listeners um, uh, are founders themselves. And so the fact that you were able mm -hmm. to get through that FDA breakthrough designation is really significant. How difficult was that? How long did it take? Um, what strategies kind of helped you push it to the finish line? You know, um, I it was not easy. I mean, I um, the program, it was mentioned to me. And I was like, oh, and then someone brought it up to me like, oh, with my idea that this could be a breakthrough device. And I was like, well, what, you know, and then I started to get into more of the regulatory stuff. There are certain criteria you have to meet, right? So you have to be life-saving or life-changing. So the fact that we were able to show that nutrition in the first two weeks of life is life-changing and prevent, you know, can prevent a life-threatening illness in um, the NICU. So there's these weird criteria. And we, um, you know, we submitted twice. We submitted the first time and our device was not ready to go. So a, a, a message for all the founders out there, I think when the breakthrough designation program was originally designed, the FDA had it in mind. Um, and, and there's a million benefits to it, by the way, too. So you do get expedited priority review and so forth. And you have open conversations um, with the FDA or more conversations with the FDA, which is really nice. Um, the reality is I think the program was designed for when people had a great idea and then they'll help you kind of bring it to market. And now your device really does need to be very close to being market ready. If not, you know, yeah. right, right. Ready to go, you know, ready to go. Well, ready that, to go. That's a great lead into kind of what's next. I mean, you, when did you get the, des the designation? We got the breakthrough designation um, May 4th, and then we are a 510K, so we are um, preparing to submit that. And the good news there is like what normally would be an 18-month, 24-month review process is now is significantly shortened and potentially could be six months. Okay. The breakthrough designation, too, I was surprised to learn how extensive it was. I mean, our application was over 100 pages long, and, you know, there's some... Um, some folks have told me too that like the breakthrough designation application is actually longer than some 510Ks. Okay. So that sets you up to um, come to market when optimistically? Uh, by the end of the year. By the end of the year. Awesome. Okay. Um, another reason why we wanted to talk was you also came out probably not as headline worthy on your in your mind as a <laughs> FDA uh, breakthrough designation, but very newsworthy in its own way, uh, your own uh, infant supplement. And I wanted to chat with you yeah. about that just because obviously we're in the middle of an infant formula shortage um, and you're coming out with this product really at, a, at an interesting moment. And I wonder if that uh, has played into this or what it's been like to, to bring this to market at this point in time. Yeah, we were actually ready to bring it to market a few months prior, but we're the first infant supplement to have Clean Label Project Certification, which is a nonprofit that looks at consumer safety, purity, and making sure that products are free of heavy metals. So going through the certification process, the extra testing, making sure you source your ingredients, we developed this based on the, all of the samples we've ever test, tested over the last four and a half years, looking at milk, looking at the common dietary 
um, issues. And, you know, then also taking into account when the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends vitamin D and iron as a supplement for all breastfeeding babies. How can we do this and how can we do a better job? I mean, it was very disturbing that I think it was of the six supplements we tested, you know, four of them contained lead. And the other thing that was disturbing too is that the pH of these supplements was really, really low. And as a mom, I know what it's like when you try to give your kid medicine and they're kind of like spitting it up and trying not to take it, but you're like, please do this. So these are things that we worked on over time. And so it just, it just gives a little bit of, you know, security. This is designed for infants, um, for breastfeeding infants. And again, it's, it's that knowing what's going on, right? There's a lot of reassurance that you can get by looking at the label on the back of a can of formula. You, you know that there's at minimum these ingredients in there. Um, I think that there's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of extra stress added to new mothers recently with a shortage. And so we're hoping that maybe this can at least maybe reassure moms that if they are nursing or breastfeeding, that the supplement can help assure that their baby's getting everything they need. Yeah, yeah. I was I was curious if this if you saw this as in any way as sort of fighting back against this this shortage and sort of increasing supply. Uh, where do you produce this? I mean, does this in any way address some of the supply chain challenges? No. So we're not produced in any of the facility. We have a um, you know we we meet the good manufacturing facilities, but the. Infant formula stuff in particular, there's only four plants in all of the United States that oh, wow. manufacture infant formula. And I think that's the issue. I mean, I just learned again today that the Abbott plant is now shut down again because of a flood. So, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why we're in this situation right now. I think it, it brings up a lot of talk about infant formula, FDA regulation, um, around formula, um, you know, companies and how difficult it is to break that market, new companies trying to come in. And then also, you know, the fact that it's, there's been issues, two babies died because of the recent, um, you know, why, uh, the Abbott plant is closed. Mm. So, you know, there's definitely great concern here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I hear you saying is there's, there's legitimate concern and some pretty big top level issues that need to be addressed. Uh, to start tackling yeah. these issues. Yeah, I mean, my experience with the FDA has been really, really favorable. I honestly can't say enough good things. I think a lot of the time the FDA gets a bad rap because they're always looking at it, taking a reactionary approach as opposed to a proactive approach. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we have nine FDA regulator, apparently, this is her quoting the head of the USDA who I've spoken to, but um, basically there's nine folks that are um, in charge of regulating the dairy industry and four for infant um, formula and product. So they're just, they're so un understaffed, you know? And I mean, I think that if anything, this has enlightened uh, everybody's notion of what's been going on and what needs to change. What needs to change is there needs to be more manpower. There needs to be more, proactive, um, you know, talks with the companies and making sure that the facilities are up to par, meeting standards on a continuous basis so that this idea of just reacting to something bad never happens again. Got it. What's your take on the, you know, the, well, not just the infant formula market, but, you know, maternal health uh, as it pertains to women's health as a global health moonshot. Um, do you feel like there's a 
certain area of innovation and type of founder that we're that we're really lacking right now. Uh, what, what's your thinking on where this area of health innovation stands and where it has some big gaps? I think there's still some huge gaps. I would say women's health, whether it be from fertility, you know, you can even say puberty to menopause, basically. I think there's still um, a lack of female founders, a lack of, um, I think there's still a very dismissive attitude, especially among some VCs. This is not a problem. Your market's not big enough. Um, I don't know how many female founders are going to, you know, agree with me on those ones. Oh, your market's not big enough. You're, you know, this isn't a problem. This is just a phase or whatever it is. And I, that's, that's got to change. I mean, if we see anything that's happened, it's really the fertility stuff. I think that's made the first big change and opened people's eyes to the fact that women want data, they want answers and they want um, more information. Those that don't want it are not going to get it. That's fine. Right. But there's still a large number of people. So the idea that, you know, in, in women's healthcare for years, right, there's just been so many assumptions made. So let's stop assuming, let's get behind the science and then provide solutions so that women have answers. Now, I think this is implied in what you just said, but but you felt like you got that pushback when you talked to VCs and investors. That's what I'm, I'm hearing from you, that this market isn't big oh, enough. Okay. Yeah. You experienced it If personally. I had a dollar for every time, I would have, you know, I mean, I've pitched to, I would say 90% of folks that I've pitched to are middle to older age white men. So talking about breastfeeding and challenges with breastfeeding, I'm not sure I had, you know, I'm not sure that I was really speaking and, and driving the point home. Yeah. Every now and then when someone has a child who's been born prematurely in the NICU, it's like, oh my God, it's like nothing, you know, yeah. don't even need to discuss it. And I think there's been a lot of polarized um, folks in this space, right? You've got the people that are like breastfeeding is best. And if you give your child formula, you're poisoning them. And then you've got the lob formula lobbyists, right? L look at why we're in the state where we're in right now. Why is it that there's four plants? I mean, there's a huge monopoly the way that formula is, is manufactured in the United States. It's just a fact. The barriers to entry, if you talk to some of the new up and coming companies, there's huge barriers. It costs a lot of money to get into the market here. And there's a lot of regulation around it for good reason, right? Because we've seen devastating consequences when things go wrong. However, I think the reality is that people need to understand, you know, women make up half the population. A lot of women, not everyone's going to have a baby, but some will have 10 of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And not, uh, not everyone's going to be symptomatic from menopause, but the reality is these are issues that apply to half the population. Yeah, that's good. Um, so obviously you are, you're, you're busy. You just came out with this infant supplement, the uh, breakthrough designation. You said six months, end of year, you could have this really tied up. Um, last question for you is kind of the what's next. Um, are, you, are you raising, looking for any kind of particular kinds of partners? Um, what does the next six months look for you otherwise? It's surprising because, you know, we're getting ready to raise a round. And then when we got our FDA breakthrough designation, the idea of acquisition came out. 
And so we've been approached by a lot of people. I think the timing is sort of, it might be the right time for an exit for us because of all of the, all of the variables that have come together, right? A lot of people are working remotely. So moms can breastfeed at home if they want to, or maybe have a little more flexibility than the mom who traditionally had to go back to the office, let's say at six weeks and so forth. Um, the infant formula shortage and the distrust that, and uh, that is unfortunately happened right now. And then the opportunities for in the NICU to not only, you know, like, like I said, the FDA gave us the stamp of approval of a life-saving device, but beyond that, it's really um, being a game changer uh, in the NICU and feeding practices in the NICU. Yeah. So it's exciting. I mean, we've all these, you know, all of a sudden I've been busy with call, which is great, great. but you know, it, it's not something I had imagined would happen right now. So yeah. I think it's just everything the universe is telling us, maybe this is the time to exit. I don't know. Interesting. We'll see. You know, because this is such an emotional topic for, for parents um, of a child who's not feeding, and because you're a doctor, I kind of want to end by giving you a chance to like give your advice to those parents, that mother who is really struggling and who might end up on the Lactation Lab website, but struggling to feed for whatever reason and is scared, feels alone. What's your, what's your message to them? Well, a couple messages I want to say. So first off, you know, there's more brands. There's some great brands of infant formula that there's currently not a shortage of right now. So let's, you know, so there, you know, there, there, you can get your hands on formula. I really strongly believe it doesn't have to be all or none. I think that stress plays such a huge role in milk production and success with breastfeeding. And then lastly, just like back to my glasses analogy, not everyone is it, it's not going to work for everybody and we need to talk about that and accept that that it's not just a you know you don't we don't just need cheerleaders we don't just say go try harder go do it longer we know that some people are not going to be as successful as others so again just like back to you know needing a hearing aid or i don't know I'm trying to think of any other body part that may break down or a type 1 diabetic whose pancreas doesn't make insulin right. It's not their fault, yeah. right? It's they're genetically predisposed to it. So I would say what I'm excited about is like, you know, bringing more science to women's health all across the board, every aspect, so that the assumptions, the, you know, the wives' tales, the all of that can start to be, you know, demystified. Yeah. And, and what that'll lead to is really more empowerment for moms. I love it. Dr. Canale, it's always good to talk to you. I love what you're working on and so excited that you got that breakthrough designation uh, at this thank at you. this critical time and it's going to do a lot of good. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. All right. Take care. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers around the world who are dedicated to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 400 companies, go to StartupHealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund, go to HealthMoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back again with another episode next week.